and welcome to the Bright Club Highlights podcast, showcasing the best bits from the Bright Club on the 9th of March 2012. Later we'll find out why particle physics is just like sex, and we'll be hearing from a boob wizard. But to kick off, a song from virtuoso Johnny Berliner, all about dark matter. When you look up in the sky at night, you're seeing a mystery. The physicists are in a twist about the forming of the galaxies. It's a very heavy issue. It's an issue of gravity. It's a dark, dark matter. Cause there needs to be a substance we're just not detecting. But it's hard to find material that just ain't reflecting. But maybe it's our theories, they need some correcting. It's a dark, dark matter. So what does it feel like? How does it smell? If you had some in a bucket, then how could you tell? Could you sit on it or sculpt it or eat it as well? It's a dark, dark matter. No, we haven't got a clue what the stuff consists of. It's not made from any particles that we has a list of. And now it's really pissing all the cosmologists off. It's a dark, dark matter. accelerating rate it's a dark 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 matter oh, thank you very much that was performer johnny berlena now from dark matter to antimatter sam gregson is a high energy particle physicist at the cavendish lab in cambridge and the lhc in switzerland who works on antimatter Before we hear his set, which I should warn you has a fair bit of swearing in it, let's hear a bit about what antimatter is and what his research involves. Everything around us is made up of a a small number of indistinguishable subatomic particles called quarks and leptons. Um, And each of these matter particles has um, an opposing antiparticle partner, which has exactly the same properties but uh, an opposite electrical charge. And uh, the kind of um, idea is that nowadays we, we only see around us everything made out of matter and we don't see any antimatter, whereas in theory, um, matter and antimatter should be equivalent. So where is all the antimatter? And the way we, we try to figure this out is by the, by the concept of CP violation. And the idea is that um, the universe was initially created with an equal amount of matter and antimatter, um, but the antimatter decayed away slightly quicker. 
Um, and then when the matter and antimatter came together and interacted, there was slightly more matter than antimatter. They destroyed each other and you got a lot of light and a small amount of residual matter left over. And that's the state of the universe we see today. A little bit of matter and lots and lots of light. Um, so we need to look for this, this source of CP violation, which would hopefully help to explain why the universe is as it is, why we're here and why everything exists. Um, so I look for sources of CP violation in the decays of uh, D meson particles. Um, and I basically look at the rates of decay of um, particles and their antimatter partners and look for discrepancies in the rates of decay. Um, and then if there's a discrepancy in that rate of decay, um, I have found a source of CP violation and uh, hopefully it can be a contribution to uh, the state of the universe as we know it at the moment. It's very much a kind of um, explain why we're here, how we came into being kind of ethereal, overarching kind of kind of aim. And, and I, would con I would contest that, that maybe it does have some, some applications uh, immediately, simply because studying these things at the LHC brings in a, a lot of um, novel technologies that people have had to invent. The things like the tracking stations are very similar to the, what we use in modern digital cameras. Um, there's off offshoots from, from this research at CERN, for example, advances in, in medical technology from people using proton therapy. So there are some offshoot applications which potentially aren't related to my analysis, but, but doing this analysis gives us a, this idea of, um, of where we came from and where we're going, hopefully, and, and, and has some, some kind of, I guess, what people would hope for as immediate applications are, are on the side, I guess. Hello, everyone. So my name's Sam, and I'm a high-energy particle physicist here at the University of Cambridge and at the LHC, or as my flatmate prefers to call it, not currently dating. <laughs> it's, it's not really funny, just kind of tragic to be honest. But, um, I'd like to throw something out there before we actually start proper. Um, and it's a little thing I call the particle physics drinking game. And basically what I want you to do is, anytime you hear a particle physics term that you don't understand, I want you to down some of your drink. Trust me, this got me through a particle physics degree. And there's nothing really that wrong with being drunk for an extended period of time. I mean, it seems to be how most of my professors make a pretty good living. So I think it's something we should institute. It's going to make things go a lot, lot smoother. So you probably heard a little bit about particle physics in the news recently. You know, faster than light neutrinos, the Higgs boson, the LHC. And hopefully you've seen Brian Cox and the, the Big Bang Theory on the telly. And hopefully you're wondering a little bit more what it's all about. Well, I can tell you. Particle physics is just like sex. And this is pretty handy because it tends to be the thing that it replaces. Um, <laughs> anyway, seriously, particle physics includes all the ingredients of sex. Initially, you have no idea what you're doing or what you're looking for. <laughs> so how do you start? Well, you start by randomly and crudely bashing things together hoping for the explosion you're looking for. <laughs> Which is exciting, but one way or the other, over far too quickly. <laughs> the whole process includes a lot of trial and error, and the inevitable results are a set of results that can only be cleaned up by a stack of papers. <laughs> but like anything, if you're good at it, you do occasionally get a positive result. <laughs> then you've just got to worry about whether it's being faked. 
So all this experimentation, sexual and otherwise, goes on at the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Geneva in Switzerland. Supposedly the most expensive place in the world. But I think whoever said that never tried to buy a fucking pint in here. <laughs> okay, so, so back to the LHC. I mean, I was, I was trying to think of, uh, of jokes about the LHC this week. And I know high-energy particle physics jokes, what's your fucking problem, right? It's easy. But the only LHC joke that I could come up with was kind of the old puerile one, which I'm sure you've all heard, the way that the Large Hadron Collider sounds like the Large Hardon Collider. Particle physics gives me a hadron, this kind of stuff. Not particularly funny, a little bit pure. But it got me thinking that maybe there's a little bit more to it. So that's, there's some interesting facts about the Large Hadron Collider that not a lot of people know. Well, you might not know that it actually cost five times its original budget to build. An interesting fact. You might not know that it actually started operating long before even the most optimistic experts thought. Another interesting fact. And most fascinatingly, you might not know that when it's cooled down to its operating temperature, it actually shrinks by as much as 2 or 3%. So these are fascinating facts, but if you take them all together, you suddenly have something that ends up costing you much more money than you expect. <laughs> we can see where we're going here, can't we? Yeah. <laughs> Often operates long before you'd have hoped and shrinks a significant percentage when it's cold. Now, if that's not a penis reference, then I'm not really sure what is. And I think the reason we measure everything in such small units at CERN, electron volts, micrometers, might be because everything seems fucking massive in those units. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's an end to the knob gags, actually, and uh, a little bit quicker than I, than I thought. Not bad for a first-timer. But... It, Always nice to assess the humor standards of an audience before you get into anything else, right? It'll be a nice fallback later when I get stuck. But it, the kind of puerile humor reminds me of being a, a kid growing up in Leeds, actually. That's, uh, that's where I'm from. I'm from the north. Is anyone in from the north? It's not usually something you admit to that freely, but okay. Um, yeah, I'm from the north, and, and it's kind of weird going back there when you uh, work at the LHC. My mother, God bless her, she's, she's fantastic, but she... She doesn't really have any clue about what I do, and it, it kind of stings when your brother getting his first job at MFI is just as impressive as you getting your first job at the LHC. Uh, <laughs> there's a bit of a general malaise, to be honest, where I'm from in Leeds about the LHC. I mean, nobody really knows about it, nobody really cares about it or, or knows what's going on. And the only reason I can think of is that there, if there's any place in the world that wouldn't look any different if it was being ripped apart by a black hole, it would be fucking Leeds. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so anyway, back to the LHC. You might not know that there's four main experiments around the, the ring at the LHC. There's Atlas, Alice, CMS. When I can get them out, Alex will correct me. He works with me, so tease him afterwards. Um, and LHCB, the Large Hadron Collider Beauty Experiment. And uh, I work on the Large Hadron Collider beauty experiment, where I study charm physics. So I know what you're thinking, charm and beauty at the LHC. Wasn't it nice of them to put me in an appropriately named field? <laughs> but seriously, no, I study um, the, the topic of CP violation. And CP violation isn't something George Michael gets up to in an LA toilet. It's, it's not something Jordan does with her teeth. And it doesn't carry a mandatory four-year prison sentence. 
CP violation actually considers the different physical characteristics of matter and antimatter. And incidentally, at this point, I would like to point out that the rules of the particle physics drinking game are still in effect. Unless, of course, you understand the finer concepts of CP violation, in which case, you're probably my supervisor, and I'm sorry for skiving the last two days to write this set. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, back to CP violation. So, uh, CP violation is regarding the, the differences between matter and antimatter, but most of you might not even be aware of, of what antimatter is, so I'm, I'll give you a little bit of a primer. So, every normal matter particle around us, protons, neutrons, electrons, they all have a, um, a partner, an antimatter partner, um, with the, same, uh, with the same properties, but an opposite electrical charge. And it's always nice to have an analogy in, in, in hand when we think about antimatter. And the best one that I could think of was if I make myself matter and I make my ex-girlfriends antimatter. Because there's a lot of characteristics that are similar between my ex-girlfriends and antimatter. First of all, antimatter doesn't hang around very long. <laughs> Secondly, we don't see an awful lot of antimatter around. <laughs> Thirdly, antimatter reacts violently when brought into contact with matter. <laughs> Certainly works very well for any relationship I've ever been in. Fourthly, antimatter takes over a month to send your fucking shit back after you break up. All right, no, sorry, maybe, okay. <laughs> so, so maybe maybe we're taking the analogy a little bit too far, but you see where you see where you see where I've been going with this. So you can see that we can understand the complex and convoluted characteristics of antimatter by appealing to something that's that's actually very fundamentally easy and simple to understand: women. Okay, maybe okay maybe that doesn't work either, but uh, certainly not in my experience anyway. Um, okay, so one other thing that I'll talk about that's that's really grabbed the public attention is is black holes. And this idea that the LHC could produce a black hole that would, would swallow up and destroy the entire world. And for anyone who doesn't know, a black hole is a super dense object that, that sucks you in, but it ends up destroying everything around it. But I don't really want to fall back on the ex-girlfriend jokes anymore in this set, so we'll probably move on. Um, <laughs> and I can personally convince you, I can personally assure you that no black hole is going to destroy Britain anytime soon. I finished my quota of control room shifts last week, and anyway, it'd have to chew all the way through fucking France first, and we could all watch that and laugh. So it's not really a big problem. Um, and talking about destroying the world, this is something that gets leveled at, at, at us uh, particle physicists all the time. They, this idea that we're playing God, that we're, that we're removing the, uh, the role of religion in society. And I really can't get behind this point, because I think particle physics actually actively encourage it actually encourages, when I can speak, a religious lifestyle. I mean, if there's any lifestyle choice that basically ensures that I will live a life without premarital sex, it's studying for a PhD in particle <laughs> physics. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to go grab some of those expensive pints, see if some girls have overindulged in the particle physics drinking game, and maybe one of these days I'll actually get fucking laid. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Sam Gregson from the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge and from the LHC. Coming up, we'll hear all about breasts from Hayley Friend, but just in case you thought chemistry was getting a raw deal in all of this physics and biology chat, here's Johnny Berliner again. So here we go with the Transuranic Elements song. 
I like to think of it as the sequel to Tom Lehrer's periodic table song. <laughs> Now down at the bottom of the periodic table are some elements that I'd like to introduce. They're artificially made and some are weapons grade, but mostly they don't have any use. Now round about 70 years ago, the table only numbered 92. But we needed some more just to settle the score with the Nazis back in World War II. So we took us a nucleus of uranium And in the cyclotron we fired a neutron in Well, the neutron stayed And then it beat a decayed And then we had Neptunium But Neptunium, it was no good for the bomb So we went back to our laboratories And when we made plutonium, we made up a ton And then we dropped it on the Japanese so when God made the elements, he sold us short Cause he only gave us 92 But now that we make the elements, we'll keep making more Even if they got no practical use Now americium isotope number 241 We found it only alpha decays so to prevent any harm, it's in your smoke alarm And it's saving your life every day Well, the next one along is Curium Named after Marie and Pierre And it's sitting in the space probes on the moon and Mars As the alpha source in their spectrometers Now Berkelium, that's good for nothing at all But Californium can neutron emit so if you're looking for something to start your nuclear reactor, Californium's the metal that fits. Well, Einsteinium and Fermium, the next actinides, were discovered in the H-bomb debris. But just like Mendelevium, Nobelium, Laurentium, there ain't no use for them we can see. So when God made the elements, he sold us short, cause he only gave us 92. But now that we make the elements, we'll keep making more, even if they got no practical use. Well, the US of A and the USSR were in the middle of the old Cold War. And as a matter of pride, both claimed the first transactinides, elements 107 from 104. Cause there's honor and fame in being able to name the elements that you claim to have found. But the matter wasn't settled until 1997 when the IUPAC shared them out. So Dubnium and Borium, they went to the east. And Seaborgium and Rutherfordium west. But that's a hell of a tryst to name a thing that exists for a minute or ten at the best. Well, the Germans named Hassium, Meitnerium, Damstadium, Rangernium, and Copernicium too. 
Now there's Flavorium and Livimorium, but an Untrium and Unpenium, Unceptium and Unoctium ain't got no names, they're just too new. So when God made the elements, they sold us short, cause he only gave us 92. But now that we make the elements, we'll keep making more, even if they got no practical use. Cause that's the sort of thing chemists will do. And maybe, just maybe, if I sing this song enough to enough people around the world, I would have done enough for the advancements of transuranic physics and chemistry that maybe they'll name one after me too. Yeah, Johnnyum or Bolinarium, I like that, yeah. That'll do. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in the UK. Over 47,000 women and over 300 men were diagnosed in 2008. And to understand breast cancer better, we need to understand breasts themselves better. I caught up with researcher and Bright Club performer Hayley Friend to find out about her work on breasts. So I work on the mammary gland and um, the problem I'm trying to solve is where the breast cancers originate in the mammary gland. So the problem is uh, breast cancers are very variable. Each woman's breast cancer will be completely different and react differently to treatment. And one of the reasons for this is that we think they arise in different types of cells in the mammary gland. And so I'm trying to work out what types of cells these uh, breast cancers start in. And in order to do that, I need to know all the different types of cells in the normal mammary gland. And unfortunately, this isn't that well known yet. Um, so that's another part of my research, looking at the normal mammary gland in order to understand breast cancer a little bit better. What, does your, what, what do you hope that your work will mean clinically if we understand these cell lineages better? So uh, I'm, I'm a basic biologist, so I don't do anything um, clinically applied myself. But of course, if we can understand the cell types of the mammary gland, we can better understand where these breast cancers start and how different breast cancers are, are different and will respond to um, treatment differently. And this means that we can develop um, drugs and treatments that are better fine-tuned to the exact breast cancer a woman has. We can look at the type of breast cancer she has, the type of cells you'll find in that breast cancer and where it started from, and direct the drugs to those. It's why, at the moment, a lot of drugs um, don't have particularly high success rates for some women, but can work wonders for other women, and we don't actually understand why. So we need to understand the basic biology first to be able to apply that clinically. And in terms of the cells that you find, um, explain a little bit about the different types of cells that we find in mammary tissue. So mammary tissue, you have two main types of cells. Um, so to explain the basic biology of the mammary tissue, you get uh, these long sort of tubes that will take the milk to the nipple. And at the end of these long tubes, you have buds, which are the milk, have the milk-producing cells we call these alveoli and in the tubes and in the buds it's a bilayered epithelium so it has two layers of cells and you have one layer of cells that's lining the lumen which we call the luminal cells and we have one layer of cells outside this which are the myoepithelial cells which are the basal cells and they um, we think hold the stem cells of the mammary gland although that's not quite clear yet and they also have the muscle tissue to be able to push the the milk towards the duct. And do we know um, whether cancerous changes can happen in both of these different types of cells or is it more, more restrained to one of the types? So the old dogma was you got two, several types of cancers, but two categories of uh, breast cancer was luminal type breast cancer and basal type breast cancer. 
So we believe that the luminal type breast cancer came from the luminal progenitors that I've already described and the basal from the basal cells. But actually, it's now emerging that it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's looking like cancers that look like they're luminal could actually come from the basal layer. And um, so it's not actually as simple as what the, the breast cancer looks like is a cell it comes from, which obviously makes things a little bit more complicated. So that's what Hayley does in her day job. But in her Bright Club set, she set herself the quite frankly easy task of convincing people that breasts are brilliant. Hi everyone, my name is Hayley Friend. And I notice in the uh, informational material sent out, I'm listed as the breast specialist. <laughs> Personally, I prefer the boob wizard, but, uh, <laughs> or maybe the titty virtuoso, or the bap master, but uh, you get what you're given, so. But it's always strange when I talk about my work because people are never quite sure how to react, uh, especially guys. I uh, gave them what I call the look. If you imagine for a minute, I'm a guy I just met at a pub. Doesn't happen often, but uh, he says, so, you're doing a PhD, what's that on? Me? Boobs? I don't actually just say boobs, but that's all he hears, so. <laughs> Boobs. Him. <laughs> and that's the look. And I know no matter how fascinating I make the next two minutes of my work sound, he's not going to hear any of it. All he hears is, don't look at a breast, don't look at a breast, don't look at a breast, maintain eye contact. Kids are great because you don't get any of that awkwardness. I was recently at a family fancy dress party and I was dressed as a cow. Rock and roll. But uh, my little four-year-old nephew came up to me and he looked at my costume and he studied me for a while. And he was particularly looking at my udders. <laughs> and without looking up from my udders, he said to me with real respect in his voice, he said, I like your willies. <laughs> you know that awkward moment of any party where there's a gap in the music and Everyone goes quiet all at the same time. Well, that's when I screeched, these aren't my willies, these are my boobies. I don't go to family fancy dress parties anymore. Uh, so why are boobs great? Uh, one reason is that actually everybody has breasts, even men. And if you ask them nicely, some of them can even lactate. This is true. I know a guy in London that can do it. It's delicious, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> But uh, don't worry, I don't think it's going to take off. You're not going to see moob milk on the shelves of Tesco's anytime soon. But, uh, the reason for this is that the breasts begin uh, growth in the embryo as very rudimentary structures in both males and females. And it's when testosterone is switched on in the males that they then regress. And this is why men have nipples. But actually, we should all be incredibly grateful for our breasts. And that's because not everything has them. Or more specifically, not all mammals have them. The duckbill platypus doesn't. What the duckbill platypus has is an enlarged sweat gland. And the young will literally lick sweaty patches of fur. So we should all be grateful we're not a duckbill platypus. <laughs> Can you imagine page three? <laughs> so actually, the breast is pretty unique. 
uh, because most of the growth occurs after birth. At puberty, a massive, <clears throat> a significant amount of growth occurs. Finally, the train bar can come off and the breasts have arrived. And this is because the ducts that are eventually going to carry milk to the nipple start growing and branching until they feel the pad of fat in the breast. And this is where development largely stops. But we do get small amounts of growth and regression with each Easter cycle with each menstruation. So we're stuck like that until pregnancy. And at pregnancy, we get another burst of growth. And I like to think of this as God's extra little punishment for Adam. The bit that didn't make the Bible, sort of like the director's cut. And Eve shall have massive breasts, but it will be when her stomach is so big she can no longer see her toes. Sort of more ghost, less God there. <laughs> Need to work on that bit a bit. So uh, in pregnancy, that's when the milk-producing cells of the gland grow in what we call milk buds or alveoli. And that brings me on to the next greatest thing about breasts, in that they produce food. Now, you don't look too impressed, but if I told you my ears extrude bacon, you'd be amazed. <laughs> but uh, that's effectively what the breasts are doing, right? Um, point to note, though, it's not generally socially acceptable to ask for a drink of milk from a new mum. In fact, it's not generally socially acceptable to drink breast milk at all, which is odd, because we'll happily drink it from an animal that spends all day farting. And when we get older, we'll drink it from a cow as well. So, uh, so once the breasts have finished being a 24-hour McMummies, they regress. And this means the cells of the gland die. Uh, all the structures that have grown during pregnancy will die off although uh, without the familiar stench of death, because that would be unpleasant. But the gland actually returns to what we call its virgin state. Probably the only part of you that will after giving birth. Uh, <laughs> but the really remarkable thing about breasts is that they can regenerate. If you get pregnant again, they will literally regrow and come back from the dead. In this way, they're much like a zombie. But, um, so, to conclude, mammy glands produce milk fine-tuned to the exact needs of the young. They're capable of massive cell growth and death and can regenerate as many times as is required. And, in the immortal words of Corner Shop, everybody needs a bosom for a pillow. <laughs> Thank you, good night. I hope you've enjoyed this Bright Club Highlights podcast. A huge thank you to Johnny Berliner, Sam Gregson and Hayley Friend and to all the brilliant performers on the night. To play us out, here's a final song from Johnny all about the evolution of the human race. Here's the entirety of evolution in song. So this is three and a half billion years. I hope you've been to the bar. A few billion years ago, the world had just begun. Some molecules sat replicating gaily in the sun. And every day some cosmic rays would send their replicating all astray. And off they went to win their way in the evolution of man and woman. And after a billion years, those molecules had grown mutated into RNA all upon their own and soon they changed to DNA 
than you bacteria and archaea and I don't have a clue what they are in the evolution of man and woman so we were just unicellular beings in the sea we fused ourselves with mitochondria to get energy evolving went from leaps to bounds the greatest slime mold to be found in the multicellular and astounding evolution of man and woman we evolved a body shape and a simple one at that just a head and tail we were wormy things and flat we didn't have a backbone yet we were still invertebrate, but soon a backbone's what we'd get in the evolution of man and woman. We evolved a skeleton so we could swim with style and grace. But vegetation had turned the land into a green and lovely place. And since we were evolving still, we grew some legs and lost our gills. Amphibious life on land was brill in the evolution of man and woman. We became warm-blooded, then we grew ourselves some fur And scurried round like micey things, cause that's just what we were But we couldn't grow no more, and that's because The dinosaurs would have eaten us up and there'd be no more Evolution of man and woman One day a mighty meteor came down from the sky Killed the nasty dinosaurs so the micey things could thrive. Then everything mammalian grew bigger almost daily. And you just ask a paleontologist about the evolution of man and woman. Soon our furry ancestors were swinging in the trees, looking cute and eating fruit and swinging merrily. But swinging didn't work at all So we started walking tall Opposed our thumbs, lost fur and all In the evolution of man and woman And this is where our story Starts drawing to a close We evolved a great big brain And started wearing clothes And we'll evolve some more, I think if we don't make ourselves extinct And even though I've been succinct That's the evolution of man and woman Evolution of man! Uh, thank you uh, very much. You've been, a, you've been an absolutely wonderful audience. So thank you, thank you for that. And uh, I, I hope to see you soon. Hello.